Hey, you're listening to the Bramley Baptist Church podcast. We're glad you're joining us to listen to this week's message. Whether you're starting your journey or looking to strengthen your walk with God, we believe that God will speak to you today. Let's get into the word together. Well, listen, tell me if, uh, tell me if this sounds familiar. Maybe you've, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been here or there before. Uh, Maybe you've been through going through the, the grocery store line at the, at the grocery store and you're paying for your groceries. Maybe you didn't buy that much that day, so you're paying cash. So you give the, the cashier $20 uh, to pay for your groceries, gather your groceries. You get out, go into your car, and just as you're, you're ready to put the change in your pocket, you realize uh, that you have the same $20 bill in your hand that you handed to the cashier. Uh, in other words... She gave you, they gave you too much change back. And maybe it's at that moment that temptation enters in. No? Nobody wants to confess to that? Okay. To be clear, you should give it back. Just in case you're wondering. But maybe for a moment, you think to yourself, maybe they wouldn't know. Maybe they wouldn't realize. Maybe, maybe this is a blessing in disguise. It's not, by the way. In that moment, temptation enters in. What do you do? And of course, temptation can be simple. It can be very, very complex. But, but temptation is what, uh, is what James is talking to us about today. And, 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 um, and our writer James is writing because he wants us to understand uh, where temptation comes from. But he isn't interested in simply increasing our spiritual knowledge about the ways of temptation. No, no, we know uh, that James is a a letter, uh, a letter that James has written because he wants us to know that the true genuine faith is a faith that works. True faith is a faith that will uh, persevere uh, under temptation. And his philosophy is, if you and I are going to persevere under temptation and overcome temptation, well, then we need to understand temptation. So he shares with us three things, three things that you're going to see as we journey through just just a a few verses uh, this morning, three things that he wants us to know. He wants us to know, number one, where temptation doesn't come from, because that's important, where it doesn't come from. He wants us to know where temptation does come from. And the third thing he wants us to know is where do we look when temptation comes? So how do we persevere? How do we remain steadfast under temptation? Well, let's open up our Bibles. And my hope is is that you brought your Bibles this morning. Uh, If this is your first time, this is what we do every Sunday. We open up our Bibles. And it's important for you to have your copy of God's Word so that you can make sure that I'm not twisting it or, or tainting it in any way, that what I'm sharing with you up here is what you have in your hands. 
And uh, this is what we do. We go through God's word together uh, every single Sunday. So open up to James chapter 1. And I just want to read a a few verses for us. We're going to look at verses uh, 13 to 18. And uh, I like the English Standard Version. That's what I'm reading and studying from. Um, But uh, if you're able to, I'm going to ask that we'd stand in, in reverence to God's word this morning. James chapter 1. I'm going to start reading here in verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's word to us this morning. Uh, You may be seated. So if you're joining us this morning, we are in our second uh, week here of journeying uh, through the letter of James. And, and James, as we said, is a letter uh, that is written by none other than the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and we wouldn't know that right away because the only thing that James reveals about himself, he introduces us in verse 1 as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can figure it out just by doing a simple process of elimination of, of history, which we did last week. We won't do that again. We can figure out that the, it only makes sense that this is actually uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is writing this letter. And, and most scholars believe uh, that this letter was written fairly early on in the Christian movement. Like, I'm talking like within a decade or so of Christ's resurrection and ascension. And uh, we assume that... Because we get the sense that James is writing to the earliest Christian converts. And the earliest Christian converts were Jews who converted from Judaism to Christianity. And we get that uh, from a few things. Well, we get that by the way he, he talks about who he's writing to there in the first verse. You can see that there where he introduces himself in verse 1. And in the second half, he says, to the 12 tribes, that is, the 12 tribes of Israel, he says, in the dispersion. Which means that these are Jews that have been forced to disperse. They've been forced to spread throughout the Roman kingdom, and they've been forced to spread out uh, because of their fellow Jews who are now persecuting them now that they've converted to Christianity. So it makes sense, right, that James would start out his letter the way we saw he did last week, to count it all joy. When you face various trials of various kinds. Why? Because these Jewish believers were facing real trials. They were forced to leave a a place and and a community that they had known and loved. Uh, Some of them, uh, because they converted to Christianity, their their families had turned their backs on them and disowned them. On top of that, they gave up the financial stability that came with part of being with that community. And so, and we know that some of them, as we read, we'll find out that some of 
these Jewish believers, because of their, their leaving, are suffering significant financial hardships. And so we saw last week, James is writing this letter to be uh, an encouragement to them, that he's encouraging them, count it all joy as you face these trials that you are facing, because through these trials, God is working something out in you. He's strengthening you and growing you and maturing you and sanctifying you. So count it all joy. And then as we start this week, there's a bit of a shift there in verse uh, 13. We see it. Look, look there with me in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And he goes on and in those two verses, he mentions the word tempted or tempt five times. It's clear that James has shifted his focus. It's, it's, um, uh, he shifted his focus from trials to tribute to temptations. And his point is, is it hasn't changed much that just as true, genuine faith impacts how you and I deal with trials and tribulations, your true, genuine faith in Jesus impacts how you and I handle temptation when it comes our way. Remember that James is writing a very practical letter. And he wants these believers, he wants us to know that true, genuine faith is a faith that works. That is, that if you have true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, it's not simply head knowledge. But rather, it is a faith that has practical, everyday applications to the way that you live your life and make choices and decisions. Your faith, if it is genuine, should be working and be evident in the way you live your life. Last week, it was how your faith works in trials and tribulations. And now James is saying, True, genuine faith works as you face temptation. But let's ask ourselves, is this shift that he's doing from trials to temptation, is it really that big of a shift? In fact, if you were to read this passage in its original language, well, you would notice something that suggests that James has in mind that trials and temptations go hand in hand. You would notice, for instance, that the Greek word that is translated for trials in the first half of chapter 1 is the same word that is translated as temptations in our passage today. They both have the same root word of Greek, parazo. So James, we get the sense that his focus hasn't changed much at all. In fact, temptations could actually be seen as just a different form of trials, can't they? We often face trials and tribulations, but those trials and tribulations actually have a way of leading into some kind of temptation. Right, financial trials, well, that can bring with it the temptation to question God's providence or the temptation to secure financial stability through immoral decisions or transactions. The death of someone close to us could tempt us to question God's love for us. 
Seeing the righteous suffering and the wicked succeeding could tempt us to question God's justice or to question if God even exists at all. Trials and testing will inevitably bring temptation. They go hand in hand. In fact, sometimes the temptation comes in the way that we're trying to deal with this trial or tribulation. Sometimes the the temptation comes in a way that we're trying to escape from the pain of this trial or tribulation. Because the temptation is, where do I run to for comfort when stress is high? Like, is it, is it that I go to the bottom of a bottle? Is it a, an overindulgence in comfort food? Is it that I lose my temper and fly off the handle on my family and friends? Is it that it leads me to a pornographic website or, or maybe an illicit sexual encounter? Or do I find escape at the end of a joint? Right, the temptation... To step outside of God's good purposes for us is wrapped up in the stress of trials and tribulations. And so James, I don't think he's really switching subjects at all. He's merely addressing for us a different form of testing in our lives. And that testing comes from temptation. And just as he was encouraging us to persevere through trials, the shift this week is to encourage us about the blessings of persevering through temptation. In fact, there's a a connecting verse, right? The the end of our passage last week, verse 12, actually serves as kind of a a hinge between these two passages. I mean, look at, uh, remind ourselves again and look at verse 12. What it says there, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Again, we could just switch that word, uh, trial, uh, for temptation. To mean, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under temptation. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. The idea is that the same blessing that comes from persevering through trials is the same blessing that comes from persevering through temptation. And James' point in his opening verses here is that the same way that the Lord uses trials in our lives is the same way he uses temptation. That is, he uses it for our good. He uses it for our strengthening. He uses it for our maturing and growth. So the question is, and how? How do you and I persevere? How do we remain steadfast in temptation. And right now, I mean, every ear in this place and, and everyone listening online, I mean, your ears should just perk up because just as there are none of us who are immune to trials in our life, there are none of us who are immune to temptation. And just as trials and tribulations come in custom shapes and sizes for everyone, there is a temptation that comes in custom shapes and sizes for each of us. I mean, we notice, again, that James describes it much the same way as he did last week. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, let no one say when 
he is tempted. When? Again, the point is subtle but, but clear. Temptation is not a matter of if you face temptation, but it's a matter of when you face temptation. You see something similar in verse 14 there. He says, but each person is tempted. That is, again, the temptation comes to each person. But that word, each, it indicates the temptation is individual. I am tempted as an individual. You are tempted as an individual. So how do, I, how do I deal with temptation? Well, I think it starts with us beginning to understand temptation. And I think it starts with understanding where temptation comes from and where it doesn't come from. And James starts with the latter. He wants us to know where temptation doesn't come from. And he wants to make clear, super clear, that temptation does not come from God. Temptation does not come from God. He wants that to be clear for us. Make no mistake about it. Temptation does not and cannot come from God. Look at what he says there in verse 13. He, he makes this clear. He says, let no one sit when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I mean, I don't, I don't think he can be any clearer. We need to understand that, that God doesn't tempt anyone. And James, so James is saying that if you are tempted, one thing you can be sure, that that temptation you are facing, it doesn't come from God. Why can we be sure? Well, he says because it's, it's totally contrary to God's nature. He says, God cannot be tempted by evil. That is, evil is, is not enticing to God at all. He has nothing to gain from tempting anyone. God has no leaning towards evil. There's nothing enticing about evil to God. There's nothing he can gain from evil. Nothing he gains by tempting you or I to do evil. And so it's illogical that God would tempt anyone. It's kind of like this. I mean, if you made me a tuna sandwich and you tried to tempt me with that tuna sandwich, it would not work because I hate tuna. I hate it. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hey, okay, amen, somebody. All right. And you could dress that tuna up in all kinds of ways. You can make it look as enticing as you want it. I will turn it down all day, every day. I hate tuna. But that's what James is saying, why God can't be tempted with evil. He hates evil. It's not enticing to him in the least bit. And since he hates evil and does not gain from evil, it's contrary to who he is. He cannot and will not tempt anyone. The question, of course, is, well, why? I mean, why would anyone think that it is God who is tempting them? Why would we think that? Well, think if somebody were to follow this logic here, maybe you can track with me. We know that God is sovereign over our lives. He's sovereign over the world, which simply means that there's nothing that can happen in this world or in my life that God doesn't allow. 
So if God has allowed or even brought this trial into my life and this trial uh, has lead, led me to be tempted and that temptation has led me to give in to sin, well then God is, must be responsible for my sin. Do you see? I know that sounds crazy, but we do this all the time. We play the blame shifting game. We may not blame God, but we blame our circumstances. We blame people that God has put in our life. We blame our parents, our upbringing. And all those things very well may have something to do with us being enticed. But listen, you and I are ultimately responsible for our actions. You cannot blame God when you are tempted and given to that temptation. That's all you. Adam tried this, remember? Adam tried this. Uh, uh, Right after they had eaten the fruit in the Garden of Eden, God comes looking for Adam and he says essentially, Adam, hey, what happened? Remember Adam, what he said? He says, this woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. I mean, way to go, Adam, right? Like, Like in one shot, he blames his wife And then by extension, he says, come to think of it, I didn't even know what a woman was until yesterday. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't even be married. So if you think about it, God, uh, this is kind of your fault. But the scriptures are clear. James, very clear. God is not the author of evil. Or nor does he tempt anyone with evil. But what we are meant to understand is that because God is sovereign, that he can use and allow trials and temptations for his purposes in our life. I'll say that again because maybe some of you, you might not get that until you get home. Because God is sovereign, He can use and allow trials and temptations to happen for his purposes in our life. And that's the picture that James is giving us if we were paying attention last week in verse 3. Remember, look back at verse 3. Remember what he says there. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So the reality is that even though God is not the author of temptation in our life, he allows us to be tempted knowing that it serves a a greater purpose that we may be made brought to maturity and strengthened, right? That's what James is saying. God can use trials and temptations but he's not the author or source of the temptation. You know, I think Jesus is a great example of this. I mean, in the Gospels, we know that Jesus is tempted. Uh, If you read the Gospels, who is it that leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Holy Spirit. You read each Gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke all record that the Holy Spirit led Jesus 
into the wilderness where he was tempted. So the Holy Spirit led him, but it was clear that the devil was the one that did the tempting. And part of that is because there was a purpose to the tempting. Jesus had to be tempted. He had to be tempted to undo what Adam had done, right? He had to face the same tempter and the same temptation that Adam faced. And where Adam failed, he had to overcome it on our behalf. It was necessary for Jesus to be tempted. Not only that... But as our great high priest, we keep reading in the New Testament and we see that Jesus had to face temptation like you and I face temptation so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses and even help us in temptation. You think of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. You can write that down. Hebrews 2, 18. It says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or maybe you love uh, Hebrews 4, 15. I know I do. Hebrews 4, 15 says this. It says that we do not have a, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. God used the temptation that happened in Jesus's life for his purpose. It was necessary for Jesus to face and overcome temptation on our behalf. It was necessary. It served a purpose for him as our high priest that he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness and help us when we are in temptation. And just as temptation served a purpose in the life of Christ, so temptation serves a purpose in the life of the believer. He uses it for our growth, our sanctification. He allows us to be tempted for our strengthening. But make no mistake about it, James says. God is not the author of the temptation. So we, we need to know where temptation doesn't come from. It doesn't come from God. The question is, well, then where does temptation come from? Temptation comes from within. That is, temptation comes from our desires. Listen, I know we'd like to blame uh, the devil. I know that we'd like to blame the culture and the world. But the reality is that where temptation starts, it starts right here in my heart, in my desires. And that's what James is saying here. Don't take my word for it. Read what James says here in verse 14. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, watch this, by his own desire. Temptation comes from my desire. And let's be clear, like, like that desire, the desire may not be evil in, in and of itself. In fact, what is tempting about temptation is that temptation usually drapes itself in natural desires, good desires. The temptation is that we fulfill those natural desires in ungodly, unnatural ways. 
The desire itself may not be sinful, but temptation is what lures and entices us to fulfill it in an unnatural, ungodly way. Let me give you an example. We all have a desire to eat. I'm just going to assume I'm not the only one. I, I like to eat. We need to eat. That's a good desire that you and I have to eat. We need to eat to survive. But temptation happens when you and I seek to fulfill that desire in an unnatural way. Like when we want to binge eat or overeat, when we eat obsessively, when we make gluttons out of ourselves, that's when it becomes sinful. We've taken a natural desire and fulfilled it in an unnatural way. We all get tired, we need sleep, but when that natural desire for rest turns into laziness, that's when temptation turns to sin. And it's no different when it comes to matters of sexual desire. Sexual desire is natural, it's God-given. Sex is a gift from God meant to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. But temptation comes when we are tempted to fill that good, natural desire in an ungodly, unnatural way. We need to know this. We need to understand temptation, where it comes from. Temptation stems from my desires, from your desires, luring us to fulfill that desire in an unnatural, ungodly way. See, here's what most people would say if they, if they give in to temptation and they say, and they say, well, the devil made me do it. Or maybe we'll, we'll blame our circumstances or the influence of the world. But the reality is that you and I are the greatest temp tempters of ourselves. Listen, you could lock yourself up in a cave. Turn off all communication to the world. No TV, no social media, no internet, no human interaction. And guess what? You by yourself in that dark cave will still struggle with temptation. Because temptation stems from our desires. And temptation is tempting because we can't see the hook. We can't see the trap. In fact, that's exactly the imagery that James is using here. He's using the imagery of bait. You see it, he says, each one is tempted when he is lured and that word lure, fisherman, you guessed it. It's the same word used to talk about luring a fish with bait. So, so that's what happens. We, we have this desire, this, this natural desire, and the bait, it entices us like a fisherman trying to lure us in with this desire. Now it's different for each one, right? We, we notice that. Like your bait and my bait is different. Again, we go back to the tuna sandwich. You put tuna sandwich on a hook, I'm not biting. But you put a medium rare T-bone steak on, man, I'll bite it all day long. <laughs> the question is, and we need to know this, what tempts you? 
Because what tempts you is different than what tempts me. But guess what? The enemy knows the difference. Your heart knows it. The world knows it. And so it baits the hook with a desire that suits you. And you and I are tempted when we are lured away and enticed to fulfill that desire outside of God's purposes and plans. The problem is we never see the hook. We never see the cost. We just see the bait. And we're hooked and we're caught and we're carried away. James says there's a cost. Right? The hook is baited, but the hook is sin. You, you, you can't see the trap. You only see the bait. Notice what he says next there in verse 15. He says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We had this saying when I, was, when I worked in retail, when you were dealing with the customer, here's what you always wanted to do. You always wanted to under-promise and over-deliver. So, meaning, uh, if, you can't, if you can have it ready in five minutes, you don't tell them five minutes. You tell them, I'll have it ready for you in ten minutes. And then when you get it done in five, they're like, wow. You've exceeded their expectations. You've got a happy customer. You don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, right? Because then you got unhappy customers. So you don't want to tell them, I can have it ready for you in five when it's going to take you 10 minutes. See, the problem with temptation is that it always overpromises and underdelivers. Temptation always overpromises and underdelivers. It will always make you stay longer than you want to stay and pay more than you're willing to pay. And that's what James is getting at here. The bait is set with your custom-made desire and oh, you, you give in to that desire and the promise is of satisfaction and the promise is always of happiness and fulfillment, but the desire, when that desire turns into action, James says, it conceives a child, that child's name is sin, and when that child grows up, that child becomes a murderer. And it brings forth death. That is that, that sin, it promises life, but it only brings death. All it can do is bring forth death and destruction and guilt and shame and depression. It brings forth unfulfilled unsatisfied expectations. It, it brings forth a strained relationship with God and others. Temptation always overpromises and underdelivers. I promise you, it cannot live up to the hype. That's why James urges us with this warning. You can almost hear him begging. You see that in verse 16? Look what he says. He says, do not be deceived. 
Don't be deceived. Don't, don't take the bait. Don't buy the lie. I, I know that sin looks tempting. I know it's enticing. I know it's promising you life and happiness and satisfaction. But I promise you on the other side, on the other end, is the hook of death. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So what do we do? I mean, I hope you're still with me. We, we, now we know where, where temptation doesn't come from. Temptation doesn't come from God. We know that. We know where temptation does come from. It comes from within, from our own desires when we are lured and enticed away to fulfill that desire in an unnatural way. Okay, we understand that, but now we need something that works. What do we do? I think that's why these next verses are so, so important. They tell us where to look when we are facing temptation. Don't look within. You won't find any answers there. But James says, look to the Father of lights. Look to the Father of lights. Look at verse 17 here. He says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James wants us to know, no, temptation and, and evil, it doesn't come from God's hand. It's, it's actually the very opposite. Everything that is good, everything that is perfect, everything that is wonderful in this life, you and I have received it. It, it comes from God, our heavenly Father. Remember that, the, the next time that you're sitting there and you're thinking how grateful you are for your family or your friends or your spouse or your kids, just, just pause and remember this very verse. Every perfect and good gift has come from above. Maybe you love your, your gifts and your talents. Maybe you love your job and your home. Maybe you just love being outdoors in creation and you're looking around and you're thinking, this is wonderful. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. But we got to ask, why mention it here? Why mention that after talking about temptation? Well, if God is the giver of good and perfect gifts, then no doubt he is the one who will gift us with everything we need to overcome sin and temptation. God's good and perfect gifts, they aren't just blessings in this life that we enjoy as much as they are. But, but, but God has gifted us with everything that we need to overcome sin and temptation. He's gifted us with everything. Maybe the greatest gift, not maybe the greatest gift he could have gifted us with, his son, Jesus Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. 
And and God sent us his son, Jesus, who overcame temptation on our behalf. He defeated the enemy and his temptations. And then he goes to the cross, taking on our sin, our guilt, our shame for every time that we've given in to temptation. And he lays his life down. He pays the debt of sin. He defeated temptation and sin so that we might have life and victory in his name. Our heavenly father of lights, the perfect and the giver of perfect and good gifts, while he's given us his Holy Spirit, who Paul says that through him that we can put to death the deeds of the body. That is that the Holy Spirit empowers us and equips us and he convicts us of our need and ability to resist temptation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can look temptation in the eye and say, no, I won't give in. And oh, the God of of good and perfect gifts, he's given us precious, precious promises in his word. Let me just share with you some promises that I hold on to in in my moments of temptation. This verse has just been a a precious treasure trove for me. I want to share it with you. You want to write this down and and look back at it later. But but here's a a verse, a a promise to you when you and I face temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Look Look at this promise here. The promise is this, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Precious, precious promises. Three promises in this verse. Number one promises that whenever you are facing temptation, the temptation you are facing is not some special kind of design temptation for you. That it's a temptation that is common to others. There are other believers down through the generations that have faced the very same temptation that you are facing and God has given them victory over it and he will give you victory over it. Here's promise number two, that that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's a promise. That's a promise to hold on to you that when when you and I are tempted, that, that God knows our limits and he will not let us beyond tempted, beyond our ability to say no. You are able, praise God. It's a promise from God that he knows our limits. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond those limits. His promise number three, he always provides a way of escape. Do you see that there? With temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. Now you gotta look for it. You gotta want it. But I promise you, when you are tempted, if you're looking for an escape, I promise you, he's provided it, it's there. Precious promises, good and perfect gifts from our heavenly father that when we face temptation, we will not be tempted beyond our ability to resist and he will provide a way of escape. And that's why James says, 
when you face temptation, look to the good and perfect giver of gifts. Because when you do, you find out and you are reminded about who he is and who we are to him. Look at verse 17 again. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, watch this, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. No variation, no shadow due to change, which simply means God does not change. This is what theologians call the immutability of God. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. He does not change. And that's That's such reassurance in this ever-changing, unstable world. It tells us, first of all, that God has not changed his mind about sin. He has not changed his mind about what is good and, and what is evil. He has not changed his mind about what is right and what is wrong. As much as this world is changing every day about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. God has not changed his mind. As a musician, some of you know I play the trumpet. One of the things I carried with me all the time when I traveled to play, I carried a tuner. Because my trumpet... Uh, it would get out of tune depending upon uh, the atmosphere or where I was. If it was cold, if it was hot, if it was damp, my trumpet would get out of tune. I would need something to know what a concert B-flat sounds like. And so I pulled out my tuner because I knew that no matter where I was, what I was doing, that no matter what point in history it was, a concert B-flat is a concert B-flat. And I can tune myself to that note. And that's how the scriptures portray God to us. He never changes. He's the same God 2,000 years ago that he is today. And he doesn't change his mind about what is right or what is wrong. And, And as much as the world around us may want to influence our understanding of right and wrong, good and evil, We don't tune ourselves to the culture around us. We tune ourselves to the word of God and the truth of God. And if he does not change, here's why that is good news. Because it means he hasn't changed his mind about you or I. He still loves us. He still calls us his own. He does not regret forgiving us and releasing us from the debt of sin. And and even though I may have given given into the same temptation a hundred times over, he has not given up on me this time and he will be there to strengthen me and equip me to resist temptation this time. We find out who God is when we look to him. We find out who we are in him. Look at how James ends this passage, verse 18. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You wanna fight against temptation. Be reminded of who you are in God's eyes. Be reminded of the work he has done and is doing, that that of his own will, 
He was not forced or coerced. He freely chose to to call you unto himself. And, And the change that he is doing in us is through the power of his word. Oh, there is life-giving, life-transforming power in the word of truth. And when you and I face temptation, it's those precious promises, those truths of God's word that will help us fight that battle. Notice what else he says, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That word first, fruit, it's, a, it's an Old Testament sacrifice word that, that when you were blessed with a, a bountiful harvest or bounty, that you would take a, the first portion of that harvest or bounty, you would take that first portion and you would give it back as, a, as an offering, as a sacrifice to the Lord, as though you're saying, thank you for this blessing that you have given me. And James is saying, that's what you and I, that's who we are We are the first fruit. We are a living sacrifice, a life offered in service to the Lord. We've been set apart for God's purposes in this world. And when you and I forget that, that's when we give into temptation. When we forget who we are and what Christ has done for us, that's when we are tempted to follow the course of this world. When we forget that, that's when we've taken our eyes off the Lord. Brother, sister, this morning, the the word of God calls us to have a faith that works. Not just a faith of intellectual knowledge, but a, a faith that actually impacts the way you live your life. A faith that perseveres in the face of temptation. And in order for that to happen, well, we need to understand temptation. We need to understand where temptation doesn't come from. It doesn't come from God. God does not tempt anyone. We need to understand where temptation does come from. Temptation stems from our desires when we are lured and enticed to fulfill that desire in an unnatural, ungodly way. But most importantly, we need to be reminded of where to look when we are facing temptation. Not within, but look to the Father of lights. The one who gives good and perfect gifts. The one who has given us, he's gifted us everything that we need to overcome temptation. Look to him. Be reminded of who he is and who we are in him. Thanks for listening and making us a part of your walk. We encourage you to take today's teachings and apply it to your life. Challenge not only yourself, but those around you. Our support in your journey does not end here. To hear more messages from all our series or to speak to someone to help grow your faith, visit us at branley.org.